Hi, this is Edwin Crozier of the Franklin Church of Christ in Franklin, Tennessee. I want to welcome you and thank you for joining us as we study God's Word together. If you haven't already done so, we want to encourage and invite you to subscribe to our sermon podcast through iTunes. Simply go to the iTunes store, search for the Franklin Church of Christ, go to our podcast, and hit subscribe. Today's lesson was presented to the Franklin Church on March 1st, 2009. It is the second part of the lesson on one body from Ephesians chapter 4, verses 4 through 6. If you haven't heard the first part, I encourage you to download and listen to it first. If you'd like to follow along with the printed notes, you can find the outline for both lessons in the sermon archives on our website at franklinchurchofchrist.com. Now, I invite you to open your Bible and get ready to learn about how each congregation can have the unity of the one body. Well, we started this lesson last week, but because of the fact that our heat was out in here, we cut it short. Y'all got to hear a little bit of it. We're going to continue that concept of the one body. In Ephesians chapter 4, we hear Paul talk about the one body. Beginning at verse 4, he says that there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. One of the problems that I often have is that I take passages like this and I can apply them to everybody else and not apply them to me. Or I can talk about lessons that are about all those people that are out there and all the things that they're doing wrong based on this verse and not ever stop and talk about us. And we often use this passage as it talks about one body and the one we read in Colossians as it talks about being in that one body. And we can preach lessons about how wrong all the religious division out there in the world is. All those denominational differences and denominations that are going on. And certainly there's some application from this passage to the denominationalism that's rampant in our world today. But one of the things we talked about last week is that when Paul wrote this, there weren't any denominations. He wasn't talking about denominationalism. Rather, he was talking about that universal body of Jesus Christ and, and what it was and its oneness, and then applying those principles to the local body at Ephesus and how it was supposed to behave and how the members within that body were supposed to behave so that they could have that one body kind of unity. Now, last week we talked about the one body, and we pointed out that no matter what religious organizations we're a part of locally, we better make sure that we're a part of the one body. We are able to look at Ephesians chapter 4, verses 4 through 6, and point out that if we want to be in the one body, we have to be led by the one spirit. If we're led by anything other than the one spirit and his revelation and his communication, then we are not a part of that one body that belongs to Jesus Christ. It pointed out that we need to rest in the one hope of our calling. We looked at the one hope is that idea of the inheritance that Jesus has reserved for us by his blood and by his resurrection. If we've got some other hope that we're banking on, then we're not a faithful part of that one body that belongs to Christ. We recognize that we need to submit to the one Lord. Jesus said in Luke 6 and verse 46, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do the things that I say? We need to do what he says. If we're following someone else as our leader and as our authority, then we're not a faithful part of that one body. We recognize that we need to grow in the one faith. It was once for all delivered to the saints, as Jude chapter 1 and verse 3 points out. If we're growing in something else, then we're not a part of that one body that belongs to Christ. We recognize that we need to enter through the one baptism. 
Acts chapter 2 and verse 38 says, Repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of your sins. If we were baptized in some other way or if we were not baptized at all, we haven't entered that one body because it's by that one baptism that we come into Christ and into his body. And finally, we recognize that we need to worship and be empowered by the one God and Father who is above all, through all, and in all. If we're worshiping someone else, if we're worshiping something else, if we're empowered and resting and getting our strength from somewhere else, then we're not a faithful part of that one body. And the, the major point that we learned from this last week is that, that we can't just rest in our membership in a local congregation or in some type of religious organization here in the world. We've got to make sure that we're a part of that one body. It doesn't matter what else we're a part of. If we're not a part of that one body, it's not doing us any good. So we need to make sure that we're being led by the Spirit. We need to make sure that we're resting in the one hope of our calling. We need to make sure that we're submitting to the one Lord, that we're growing in the one faith, that we've entered through the one baptism, that we're worshiping and being empowered by the one God. Because if we're not doing that, it doesn't matter what all kind of religious stuff we do. It's not going to help us a bit. There's one body for all people, for all time, who would be saved. And it's made up of the individual Christians whom God has added to that body, those who are saved. He adds to that number as they are saved. Now, having said all that, and that's where we ended up last week, we recognize that Paul was not just talking about that one universal body there in Ephesians chapter 4, but he was actually looking at that universal body and then taking its principles of unity and applying it to the local congregation at Ephesus. And within the context of Ephesians chapter 4, he talks a lot about that unity that we as a congregation need to have and we as individuals need to have so that as a congregation we can have that one body kind of unity. And we need to take a look at this and apply it to us. Sure, there are things that we could say about what's going on in the world, and the vision that's in our world today is wrong. It shouldn't be there. But we need to take a look at us and how can we maintain the unity that we need to have as children of God. And in Ephesians chapter 4, beginning at verse 1, I want you to notice that he says, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called. That's what that unity is based on. The way we walk. And then throughout Ephesians chapter 4, and we're also going to be taking a look at the parallel passage in Colossians chapter 3, he talks about the various things in which we need to walk. Now, I want to make one thing very clear before we take a look at all of these things. Is that when Paul said these things, he wasn't talking to the person sitting in the pew next to you. He wasn't talking to the person sitting in the pew behind you or in front of you or the person across the aisle. He's talking to you. As we go through these things, don't sit there and think about, oh, brother so-and-so needs this. Oh, sister so-and-so, I wish she was here listening to this. We need to take a look at ourselves and ask these characteristics that we're going to talk about. Is this the way I am living? Is this the way you are living? Because that's the only way we're going to have unity. If we're constantly looking at everybody else and how they should live, we're not going to have that unity. We're just going to have division as we self-righteously judge everybody else for how they're not living this way. We've got to look at ourselves. And if each one of us can look at self and start growing in these qualities, then we're going to have unity as a congregation. It's always going to be there. It's guaranteed. If all of us do all of these things, we will always have unity. There will never be division, ever, if we do these things. So that's what I want us to talk about, what we need to walk in. So the Franklin Church and for our guests, for the congregation that you're a part of, so that it can have Unity. Before we look at that, would you bow with me in prayer, please? 
Almighty God and Father in heaven, we love you because you are awesome and powerful. And we are amazed at the unity that you and your Son and your Spirit have and your work and your purpose and your goal, redemption, justification. And we're thankful for that. And Father, we want to be one as you are one so that the world may believe that you sent your Son, so that the world might believe that you sent us. And Father, we pray that as we work on our unity among this body, and among the bodies that are represented here with our guests, we pray, Father, that you will strengthen us to get that message out so that others can be unified with you. Not merely doing religious things, but submitting to your will, accomplishing your work, reaching your goals, and growing in your sight. Father, we love you, and we thank you so much for the forgiveness that you've given us that allows us to be a part of this body, that allows us to even think about the things we're dealing with today. Please forgive us and help us to overcome the tempter as he tries to drive a wedge between us and you, drive a wedge between us and our brethren. Father, we pray that you would help us to overcome those traps and those snares, that we might have unity, that we would grow closer to one another, that we could stand so closely that none of us could ever fall down because we're leaning on each other and leaning on you. Father, we love you, and we thank you so much for loving us. Through your Son, we pray. Amen. That was the very first thing. This is the foundation. This is where we need to start. It's not the first thing listed in Ephesians 4. In fact, it's, it's kind of the point that he gets to as he gets to the end of his discussion, but it is the foundation. It's the foundation of our unity. We need to walk in Christ, and we need to walk in Christ's word. In verse 15, if, he, if this is Ephesians 4 and verse 15, he says, But speaking the truth in love, that we may grow up in all things into him who is the head, Christ. We need to walk in Christ. Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3 and verse 16 puts it this way. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. This is the foundation of our unity. We're going to talk about a lot of attitudes and a lot of practical actions that we as individual Christians need to take so that we can maintain a one-body kind of unity in our number. But we need to understand that those things are not the foundation. This is the foundation. Colossians 3 and verse 17 says, Whatever you do in word or deed, do all things in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to the God and Father in heaven. Everything we do needs to be within the name of Jesus Christ. It needs to be authorized by what He has revealed through His one Spirit. See, the reality is we can all get along. We can all play nice. We can all do wonderful things and have wonderful attitudes, and so we can all be united. But if we are not united upon the foundation of Jesus Christ and His Word, we're going to be going the wrong direction, and our unity isn't going to be accomplishing anything good for the Lord or for us. So we need to be united based upon the foundation of Christ and His Word. Paul put it this way in the book of Ephesians in chapter 2. In Ephesians chapter 2, beginning at verse 19, here's what Paul said. Ephesians 2.19, Therefore you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom the whole body, being fitted together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. Jesus Christ is the cornerstone. 
Everything that we do, every way that we act, needs to be squared from that cornerstone and then resting upon the foundation. When it talks about the foundation of the apostles and prophets, it's not saying that they as men are our foundation, but rather the work that the Holy Spirit did through them, as the apostles and prophets are the one by which the mystery has been revealed. And it goes on in chapter 3 to talk about that. But those mysteries that they reveal, that is the will of God. That is the foundation upon which our unity must be based. Ephesians chapter 4 points out to us that, that when we do that, we will no longer be tossed about by every wind of doctrine. That's the purpose of that unity, so that we won't be tossed about. Certainly, as we grow in Christ, we might change what we're teaching to be more in line with what Christ taught through His Word. But when we have this kind of unity based on Christ's Word, we're not going to be tossed about by every newfangled doctrine and dogma that comes up and tries to lead us astray and lead us off with some newfangled enlightened way of doing things. Unity is based upon Christ's word. Now, having said that, we also need to see the other side of this point. Sometimes the issue is not that somebody's trying to do something that is unauthorized. But there are times that God, through his word, we might use the term umbrella, has authorized the class of actions and has left us to judge what is most expedient for us to do. Number of assemblies, when we assemble, the order of our assembly, uh, all kinds of things that we might be able to determine what is most expedient. The problem is sometimes we get our preference in that realm of judgment, and we heighten our preference up as if it was God's word. We might be able to come up with a dozen arguments about why the way we want to do it is the wise way to do things. But if God has left us to judge and discern what is expedient, we must not put our preference on the level of God's Word, but rather recognize that just sometimes the congregation and its leadership might determine something else is more expedient. We're allowed to give our assessments, but we shouldn't divide over that. I can just tell you, I'll give you a prime example. And, and the elders know this every year I ask them to change this. One of the things that I don't like, and I think I can come up with 5,000 reasons, okay, 5,000 is a bunch. A couple of things, a couple of reasons why it would be wired here differently. The way we do Wednesday night, having the invitation beforehand. Personally, that is not my preference. The first Wednesday night I was here before I was going to try out, I, guess, I just got to tell you. Phil Barnes walked up and said, you want to teach class? I've been here 30 seconds, and it was going to start in five minutes. I was like, no, I don't think that's going to work. He said, okay, well, how about you do the invitation? And I was thinking, sure, I've got 45 minutes to come up with an invitation. Phil Barnes did the announcements and said, now everyone's going to give us an invitation. Now, I personally don't like it. Some of you may not like it. A lot of you did. You know, let's face it. Could you imagine what it would be like if any of us decided to set our preference on that as if it was God's word and divide the congregation over having the invitation before class versus after class? That would be ridiculous, wouldn't it? But churches have divided over less. And that's because instead of allowing God's word to be the foundation, we allow our preference to be the foundation. Christ's word is the foundation. Now, I'm probably going to continue to ask every year for that, but if the elders decide to keep it the way it is, I'm not going to leave. 
I hope you're not. And, and there's all kinds of things that could be like that. Maybe you don't like the songbook. Maybe you don't like the way we do our assemblies. Maybe you don't like uh, the color of the carpet. Maybe you don't like... There's all kinds of things that we may not like. But if it's not a matter of Christ's Word, we just need to get over and be united on Christ's Word and let that be the foundation for our unity. I spent a lot of time talking about that because that is the foundation. Now we're going to move very quickly through the other items that Paul mentions as he talks about where we need to walk. He points out that we need to walk in humility. There in Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 2, in Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 2, he says, with all lowliness, your translation may say humility. In Colossians chapter 3 and verse 12, therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, put on tender mercies, kindness, humility. I love the Strong's definition for this. One of the definitions that he gives is a deep sense of one's moral littleness. Just think about that for a moment. Humility, a deep sense of one's moral littleness. For grand unity as a congregation, there's no room for the fair sake type prayer that says, God, I thank you that I'm not like all those other people. I am so spiritual, and I am so righteous, and I am so good. Aren't you glad to have me on your side? Don't you wish all those other people were just as spiritual as I am? There's no room for that in a body that's going to be united. That's just going to produce division. Romans 12 and verse 3 says that we ought not think of ourselves more highly than we ought. There's no room for the diatrophies of 3 John and verse 9 that seeks to be the preeminent or the first among us. Rather, we need to live by the principle in Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. In Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 and 4, Paul said, Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. If we're going to have humility, what that means is we're going to look at all these other people here and we're going to say, they're more important than me in this picture. Instead of putting myself up and politicking myself as the important one, whose needs and desires should be followed because this is the way I want it, we need to be humble. Recognize that the others are more important and their desires and their wants and their needs and trying to accomplish what they need within the congregation. What kind of unity would we have if we all had that deep sense of our own moral littleness as we looked at others and just tried to help them to meet their needs? The second thing that he says is we need to walk in compassion. In Colossians chapter 3 and verse 12, Therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, put on compassionate hearts, Yours may say tender mercies, or it may say bowels of mercy. Bowels of mercy. The reason for that term is because the ancients during the Bible time, they viewed the center of our emotion. While we view it as the heart, they viewed it as the abdomen, as the the bowels, the intestines. That's where the the gut-wrenching, the most gut-wrenching emotion, you you hear that? That's, That's where that comes from. Is that's where they view the seat of the emotions, especially the strong emotions. And instead of having bowels of anger and bowels of wrath, they have bowels of mercy. 
That's the strong emotion that governs our life as we look at others. When others are, are going through struggles and, and troubles, we need to view them with compassion and mercy. We must not sit in judgment thinking they finally got what they deserve. We must not sit in vengeance when they're going through troubled times thinking that, well, look at all they've done to me. We must not sit in happiness feeling vindicated because it happened to them instead of us. Rather, we need to look with mercy and compassion as our brethren go through, uh, through struggles. Rejoice with those who rejoice, yes, but we need to learn to weep with those who weep. Having compassion at heart, that being the, the driving, gut-wrenching emotion that we feel as, as we look at our brethren. great example of this, I think, is in Psalm 35. In Psalm 35, as David looked even at his enemies, in Psalm 35, in verse 13, he says, But as for me, when they were sick, my clothing was sackcloth. I humbled myself with fasting, and my prayer would return to my own heart. I, placed, I paced about as though he were my friend or brother. I bowed down heavily as one who mourns for his mother. David is talking about his enemy. When his enemy was going through struggle and turmoil, David said he had sympathy. He had empathy. He had a heart of compassion. He prayed and he fasted as if it was his own brother or his best friend that was going through the trouble. Now, brothers and sisters, I understand that we don't need to be enablers. Second Thessalonians chapter 3 and verse 10 says, If a man doesn't work, don't let him eat. And so our compassion must not go so far that we're just enablers, enabling people to just be in problems all the time because of their own actions. I understand that. But the general rule of our thought as we look to others, especially when they're going through struggles, should be compassion. Instead of being aloof and trying to be separate, not wanting to be tainted because of their lack of wisdom or whatever it might be that's causing the problem. Compassion that unfolds and helps and in fact leads to the next thing that Paul talked about, and that is walking in kindness. Compassion is the attitude of sympathy and empathy that looks with pity and mercy on those who are struggling. We need to take that attitude and we now need to move it into action, and that's kindness. Kindness is goodness in action. It's taking the compassion and now doing something. So compassionate that we're driven to look upon them with pity and do something about it. For instance, I have no doubt that the Levite and the priest, as they passed by that Jew on the side of the road, had compassion. They had pity. Oh, what a sad thing it was. But it was only the Samaritan who had compassion enough to drive him to act upon it and to live in kindness for that man. Here in Colossians chapter 3 and verse 12, Therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, put on compassionate hearts, kindness, and then in Ephesians 4, this time at the end of the chapter, verse 32, it says, Be kind to one another. Is there any greater standard of kindness than that rule that we call golden? From Matthew chapter 7 and verse 12, you know what it says. Treat others the way you want to be treated. If you were in the situation that the brother or sister is in, how would you want others to deal with you? What would you want them to say to you? How would you want them to act towards you? Well, when you see your brother or sister in that situation, do that. There's the standard of kindness that we need to be following. I just want you to think about this. What kind of unity could we have as a congregation if based upon humility, when we saw others, we had compassion and then acted with kindness toward one another? We were talking in our class uh, down in the high school room 
about how our society, just in general, is not nearly as kind and polite as it once was. It's just, that's just kind of going by the wayside because so many people today, our determination down there was because of selfishness. We need to put on kindness, and that's going to mean being a servant to other people. Selfless. Walk in kindness. But we, we heighten that and know that we need to also walk in gentleness. We need to walk in gentleness. Or your translation may say meekness. Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 2 says, with all humility and gentleness. Colossians chapter 3 and verse 12 says, therefore is the elect of God holy and beloved, but on tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness. Meekness and gentleness is not the idea of meekness. It's not the idea of submitting to others simply because you don't have the power to do anything else. Gentleness and meekness is the idea of controlled strength. We've heard lessons before where somebody pointed out that that very same word for gentleness and meekness was used to describe a tame horse. Now, the horse was powerful enough to buck its rider onto the ground and trample him into the dirt. But instead, the horse allowed the rider to sit on it and direct it. And we have the power to push each other away. We have the power to grind each other in the dirt, to slice each other around, to be mean and to be hateful. But instead of doing all those things, we gently submit. We're meek. And even if we're dealing with the other person being in sin, we approach them with gentleness. As Galatians chapter 6 and verse 1 says. When we talk about gentleness and meekness, what it says is, is that just because we have the ability to do something, doesn't mean we do. Just because we have the freedom to do something doesn't mean we do it. Look in Galatians chapter 5. In Galatians chapter 5 and verse 13. Galatians 5 and verse 13 says, For you, brethren, have been called to liberty. Only do not use liberty as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For all the law is fulfilled in one word, even this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, beware lest you be consumed by one another. Just because we have the liberty, just because we have the freedom, doesn't mean we have to pursue it and use it and demand it. This is not about rights. This is about responsibilities. This is about service. This is about meekness. Romans chapter 15, beginning at verse 1. And no doubt we can read all of chapter 14 within the context of this point, but let's just note Romans 15, beginning at verse 1. We then who are strong ought to bear with the scruples of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good, leading to edification. Instead of trying to pursue our own desires and our own will, we need to have meekness and gentleness, pursuing what will please our neighbor, what will benefit them. That's gentleness and meekness. Let me ask you, what kind of unity would we have as a body if each and every one of us had that meek and gentle spirit that was willing to submit to others? Not only do we walk in gentleness, we walk in patience. We walk in patience. Ephesians chapter 4, again in verse 2, with all lowliness and gentleness, with long-suffering, the New King James says, other translations say with patience, with long-suffering and patience. Colossians chapter 3 
And verse 12, Therefore is the elect of God, holy and beloved, put on tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering, patience. Now, a lot of times today when we think of patience, we think about the ability to be standing in the wrong Walmart line. Right? We got the trainee checker. And when that was too long, we decided to go over to another line and we got the second trainee checker. Uh, right as the skill checker went to the first line. Have you ever been there? That's what we think about with patience. And oftentimes when we go to the Bible and we think about patience, we hear that patience means the ability to endure doing Christ's will despite oppression and despite persecution and despite hardship. However, the terms defined patience here are different. That's what patience means in a lot of places in the Bible, but the term translated patience here isn't talking about being able to continue in Christ's will despite what we have to endure. This word actually means not responding hastily to a wrong done to us. Not responding hastily when wrong is done to us. Now, one of the problems is we get in congregations and we're around a bunch of people. And guess what people do? Well, a lot of times they do good, right things, especially because we're Christians and that's what we're trying to do. But guess what we do sometimes? We do wrong things. Sometimes we go back on our words. Sometimes we miscommunicate. Sometimes just wrong things can happen. Instead of blowing up because it didn't go the way I said it would or the way they said it would or they didn't do what they said or they did this to me or they did that to me. Instead of having that, that blow up, I'm going to blow up and let everybody know how mad I am because things are supposed to go my way. Calm down. And we approach things patiently. You know, this would be a lot easier, of course, if we had the humility we have that deep sense of our own moral littleness, we won't have outrage at everybody else's moral littleness. And when we have that humility, we'll be a lot more gentle, willing to submit. And when somebody wrongs us, instead of having the idea that that means it's time to, to split, we can start working on that and approaching it properly. And when we come to our brethren in gentleness, we don't come to them expecting them to grovel. We come to them expecting them to help them grow. What kind of unity might we have as a congregation if we had patience in the face of other people doing wrong to us? And he ties this in. He says we need to be patient bearing with one another. We need to walk in forbearance. The concept of forbearance means to hold up, to hold steadfast. Galatians 6 and verse 2 says, bear one another's burdens. We know what 1 Corinthians 13, 7 says when it talks about love. It says that love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. We need to walk in forbearance. You know, very interestingly, what I see here is that often the question that we get asked is, when do I need to leave a congregation? But what we see from Paul here seems to be more along the lines of, how long can I stay? Bearing with, lifting up. Even when, things, even when people are doing things that are wrong, it's the idea of I'm trying to bear with the girl, and I know that there's going to be a time that finally we might have to divide from, from some congregation that's doing wrong. I understand that. 
But it almost seems like today that's our first choice. That's why there's churches all over the place here in Middle Tennessee. And just to be honest with you, that's just ridiculous, brothers and sisters. Over the past years, we've just done an awful job with this. So we've got to do better. And, and I, I'm not just saying here. I mean, it's everywhere. You know, I mean, it's just everywhere. Church is littering the countryside. It's just terrible. Because we don't bear with one another. Trying to help each other stand firm and stand fast and grow. It's like we look for opportunities to get to lead. Tied in with that forbearance is forgiveness. Because when people do things wrong to us, we need to have an attitude of forgiveness. Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3, verse 13. Bearing with one another and forgiving one another. If anyone has a complaint against you, even as Christ forgave you, so you also must do. And then in Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 32, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you. We need to walk in forgiveness. People are going to do wrong things. We need to have the attitude. We've done wrong things, right? That's why we have a deep sense of our own moral illness. How did we want them to treat us? Didn't we want forgiveness? I know when I've done wrong things, that's what I've wanted. I'm sure when you've done wrong things, that's what you want. There's kindness, being forgiven. I understand Matthew chapter 18 and verse 15 says if you see your brother sinning, go sin, talk to him privately. If he listens, you've won your brother. If not, take one or two witnesses so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses everything may be confirmed. If he listens, you've won your brother. If not, take it to the congregation. I understand that there are times when some of our brethren, they sin and they won't listen and they're just in sin and sin and we eventually have to deal with that through congregational discipline. I know that will happen, but I think that ought to be the exception and I'll tell you what. Here's what I believe about most of the folks in this room. Is it, I think just about everybody in this room wants to serve the Lord. And so, if they've done something wrong and we come to them in humility and patience and forbearance and gentleness and with the heart of forgiveness, when we bring that wrong up to them, you know what I think they'll do? I think most of them will apologize and repent. I'm sure there's some exceptions in here that I don't know. I don't have anybody specific in mind that keeps me from saying all, but I'm sure that we have exceptions to that. But for the most part, I think that if we bring up somebody's wrong to them with these proper attitudes, they'll stop and apologize and ask us to forgive them. What should we do? Forgive them. The problem is all too often when somebody's done something wrong, we come to them more with an attitude of anger and vengeance. And I'm going to put you in your place, and I'm going to make you grovel until you finally admit how bad you've been to me and how right I am. What a victim I am. It's just awful. And so, of course, how are they going to respond to that? Defensively, polarizing, divisively. And, of course, when it's done, we'll point the finger at them. Oh, it's because of them and their sin. Never once think about us. And, well, maybe it's because when I talked to them, I wasn't humble or gentle, or forbearing, or forgiving. Luke 17 says, listen up. Your brother sins, rebuke him. If he repents, forgive him. And he goes on in verse 4 to say, even if he comes to you seven times in the day, 
saying, I repent. Forgiven. Seven times in a day, Jesus said. Forgiven. Imagine what kind of unity we might have if we walk in this kind of forgiveness. Then we need to walk in love. Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 2 says, With all lowliness, gentleness, with long-suffering, bearing with one another in love. Colossians heightens it. In Colossians chapter 3 and verse 14, But above all these things put on love. We know this love. First Corinthians chapter 13 and verse 4 tells us how love acts. Love suffers long at time. Love doesn't envy. Love doesn't parade itself. It's not puffed up. It doesn't behave rudely. Does not seek its own. Is not provoked. Thinks no evil. Doesn't rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in truth. Bears all things. Believes all things. Hopes all things. Endures all things. Love really is the culmination of all these other things that we talked about here. But the reason why this word is on this list, I believe, is because this is the kind of love we've heard so many sermons about. The agape kind of love. We know what that is, right? That's unconditional love. That means no matter how anybody else is acting, how do we act? Like this. Which means even if somebody else is not being humble, how do we behave towards them? In humility. Even if somebody else is not having compassion, what do we have for them? Compassion. Even if somebody else is not kind to us, how do we behave toward them? With kindness. Even if somebody else is not gentle, how do we behave? With gentleness. Even if someone else is not patient or forbearing or forgiving, we love unconditionally. And so how do we act? With all of these things. Just think about the kind of unity that we might have if each and every one of us walked in this kind of love. says that we need to walk in Christ's peace. Walking in Christ's peace. Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 3. Endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. In verse 15 of Colossians 3. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which also you were called in one body. And no doubt we're supposed to be peacemakers. No doubt as much as depends on us, we should be at peace with all men. But in the context of Ephesians and Colossians, he's actually dealing with a very specific point. In Ephesians chapter 2, beginning in verse 11, the scripture there says, this is Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 11, Remember that you, once Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision, by what is called the circumcision made in the flesh by hand, But at that time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now Christ Jesus, but now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made both one and has broken down the middle wall of separation. So when Paul was talking about division, he wasn't talking about denominationalism. He was talking about the division that was happening in the body because of Jewish background versus Gentile background. And his whole point was, whether you're Jew or Gentile, there's just one body. Whether you're Jew or Gentile, there's just one spirit, one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all. And so if we have the same God and the same Lord and the same spirit and the same baptism, why can't we all just have the same body? We don't need a body over here for the Jews and a body over here for the Gentiles. Just one. Now, of course, today we don't have a problem with you and Gentiles very much. 
that, that dividing line is taken care of years ago? What about some dividing lines that we have today? What about black and white? It's sad to me that there are black congregations and white congregations. I think Paul would have said, gosh, you got one Lord. You got one baptism, one faith. You only have one body. It's not just race. What about background? Now, we're born, the big thing in Ferguson Church is select the kind of person that you're going to, to try to bring in and do everything you can to try to focus on that person. I think what, peace would, uh, what Paul would say to that is, no, 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 walk in peace. Christ's peace. There's one Lord for rich people and for poor people. There's one Lord for black people and white people. There's one Lord for male people and female people. There's one Lord for the young, upwardly mobile professionals. There's one Lord for the white-collar workers, for the blue-collar workers, for management and employees. There's one Lord for Democrats and Republicans. There's one Lord for, for those from the North and those from the South. There's one Lord for Alabama fans and one Lord for Tennessee fans. There's just one Lord. And it's even the same Lord for Auburn fans. James is thankful. We ought to just have the one body and walk in peace toward all. You know what that means? Is that we do all of these things right here for everybody. No matter their background, no matter who they are, where they've been, who their parents were, no matter what they've done, we have this peace. And finally, and thank you so much for your patience this morning. There's just so much on this. Maybe I should have done it in three parts. But we need to walk in work. Unity is not an end in and of itself. We have unity so we can accomplish things. Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 16. After it said to speak the truth in love and grow up in all things in Him and as the head of Christ, that's what it says in Ephesians 4 16. From whom the whole body, joined and knit together by what every joint supplies according to the effective working by which every part does its share, causes growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. By the work which every part does. This is not just about getting along so we can have peace. This is about getting along so we can go somewhere together. And that's only going to happen if each of us is working. You may not be able to do what everybody else can do. You may not have the skills that everybody else has, but you've got something, and you need to be doing it. That way we can be united and actually going somewhere together. That's unity. That's why Christ asks us to have unity. This is where we need to walk. I just want you to think about this. If based upon Christ and His Word, each of us individually walk in humility and compassion and kindness and gentleness and patience and forbearance and forgiveness and love and Christ's peace and labor and work. If we walked in that, how united do you think we would be? Now, I understand that that's a bit of an idea. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 11, verse 18 and 19, that divisions are going to come in order to show who's approved. 1 John, chapter 2, I think it's about verse 19 or so, points out that there will be people who leave us because they're not of us. 
First Corinthians 5 demonstrates that there's going to be times where we have to discipline. Not everybody's going to live this way, and that's going to mess things up. I understand that. But in the end, we need to look at this list and say, that's how I live. And we need to be rigorously honest. It is so, it's amazing to me. The number of doctrinal differences came up the week after we decided we didn't like somebody. They weren't there two weeks ago, but all of a sudden it's a big deal because I decided I don't like it. That they did me wrong. Things weren't going my way. We can suddenly talk about how off that congregation is, and so we have to leave. We better make sure that this is how we're walking. So that when the divisions do come, because they will, they won't be at our feet. But as much as it depends on us, we will be at peace with all men. How are you walking? I hope this lesson edified you. Most of all, I hope it glorified God. Let's remember what we learned. If our congregations will maintain the one body kind of unity, then we as members must learn to walk in Christ and his word, humility, compassion, kindness, gentleness, patience, forbearance, forgiveness, love, Christ's peace, and work. If you'd like to study this further, you can find the outline in our sermon archives at our website. Also, if you have any questions about this lesson, any spiritual needs or prayer requests, please feel free to contact us by calling 615-794-2359. Or you may contact us through our website at franklinchurchofchrist.com. Also, if you're ever in the Middle Tennessee area, we'd love to meet you face-to-face. Please join us for any of our classes or assemblies. You can find times and directions on our website. Again, that's franklinchurchofchrist.com. We look forward to meeting you. Don't forget to subscribe to our sermon podcast to receive sermons like this one every week. May God richly bless you as you draw closer to Him. More importantly, may you richly bless God.